Good morning, everybody, uh, and welcome to the latest Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. My name is Kevin Carey from New America. I'm joined today by Libby Nelson from Vox.com and Andrew Kelly from the American Enterprise Institute. How are you guys? Great. Great. It's yeah. our first uh, AM uh, happy hour. So it's not a happy hour. It's a brunch. I guess it's the higher ed brunch. And we have Bloody Marys today. So cheers, everybody. Cheers. Sort of a happy hour. We're not eating. Sort of, we're not, that's true. We're not eating. It's just a happy hour. It is a happy it's hour. It's just morning drinking. It's just morning drinking. So um, I'm going to take my first drink here. Pause. So we um, full slate today. We're going to talk about the um, demise of the Obama administration's college ratings plan. Um, the non-demise of Sweetbriar College, at least for a while, the uh, maybe coming demise of affirmative action um, as the Supreme Court has decided to rehear once again the Fisher v. Texas case. But first, um, I went to Oxford, like in England last week, and I saw- Not Oxford, Mississippi. Not Oxford, Mississippi. Um, I would hope to go there someday. I I hear it's lovely. Um, But yeah, yeah, I spent the day and I was out uh, doing uh, an event near Oxford, so I went in and spent the day. Although it was like the day after I got the plane, so it was that sort of woozy kind of half-sleep-revived day you have when you take the overnight flight to Europe. Uh, But it was amazing. I mean, it was, as I think I was emailing with Libby, it, it... to the extent that I had any latent Anglophilia within me, and I probably do, it was totally, totally triggered and catalyzed by going to Oxford. And um, every American college seems like a derivative pale Im- imitation now that I've sort of been to the real thing. So uh, it was great. And they have like the greatest bookstore ever in, in Oxford, I think, that I've ever been in my life. So um, I didn't go there when I, I didn't go to the bookstore. You didn't? I went to the pubs. And yeah, I, I went to the pubs. It's yeah. just right across the street from Ah, uh, I yeah. should have gone. Yeah. Whoops. Blackwell's books, it was great. It was sort of like you could, like you would never need another bookstore for the rest of your life. And like in, you there too, in fact, there's a, a second Blackwell's like two blocks away. Is there? I, yeah, I was there last summer. It's still the background on my phone. Uh, uh-huh. Covering higher ed does not yeah. make one want to go to grad school. If this new media job ever makes me fabulously wealthy, I am going to Oxford and getting a master's degree. I decided a while ago. So. Yeah, you can do that. So what, like, what kind of master's degree can you get there? Probably, I mean, I would do history because it's what I'm interested in. Right, but right, um, yeah. I don't know what actually, what, if that is actually right? a problem. Is yeah, that yeah. Hang out at that's the, what all the Rhodes Scholars get, MPhil. Bodley right? Library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bodley mm-hmm. Library. I never was quite sure how to pronounce that. But um, yeah, it was great. It was just so bucolic and awesome and Kind of interesting. What were you there for? Uh, I was talking to a uh, the board of a publisher, Sage Publications. They invited me out to talk about my book, and so um, they're you know based in Thousand Oaks, California. So of course they had their <laughs> meeting in Oxford, uh, near Oxford, England. Um, now, did you think to yourself when you were at Oxford, boy, it would be hard to do this online? But, uh, <laughs> you could never do it online, right? Absolutely yeah. not. One hundred percent could never replicate even a little bit of what that's all about online. Um, and of course, uh, which is why only a tiny percentage of people from England have ever been allowed to go there and never will. Um, thus, proving my point. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, no, it was amazing. Although the the um, the uh, like Great Hall from Harry Potter that you can go to, the real one was closed, and so all the tourists were like, all they had a big sign like, "Okay, you can pay your money, but understand, you can't actually see the real Great Hall from from Hogwarts because it's closed for renovation right now." Honestly, I was there last year. It is you were in this like mob of people. It is like going to Hogwarts with like four thousand other people, all of whom are filing through at the same time as you. You didn't miss that much. It okay. looks like all the other dining halls at Oxford. Yep. <laughs> this is all just like totally. Over my head. Not a Harry Potter fan. Never seen the movies. Never seen the movies. Nope. Didn't read the books. Didn't read the you books. You will because you have a little, you have a daughter now. So, I know. That's so what I hear. My wife read them. But yeah. Never my cup of tea. I read the first. We've gotten through the first five, and now she's a little lost interest. But yeah. Um. So it's a good way to like spend the time, you know. 
Like just so you went all the way there, but you didn't see it. And I, was well, there's daughter. a bunch of other Harry Potter related, like other scenes from the movies were shot in other parts of it, and and just kind of the vibe is nothing but Harry Potter. So, um, I'm, yeah, so, was, I'm sure Oxford is very proud that that's what yeah. it's known for. Oh, they're, they're, they, they don't Americans apologize for it. Now. They're like, yeah. yeah, 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 come on in. There's come on this, in, spend that. your money, right? Yeah, yeah. buy a souvenir, <laughs> Hogwarts hat, right? Yeah, all the like the, the it's like half of the like the. You know, the you can go in and buy a bunch of Oxford stuff, and then in the back, it's all Hogwarts stuff. <laughs> you can, like all the different houses and everything, and, and this and that. So they're not they don't they're not making any bones about That's it. That's so. amazing. I mean, the thing like in England, I mean, it's not like a, a America where you just assume cultural dominance, right? right? You know, like they only have. I mean, in England, there's only so many things that they actually are famous for around the world, and so they're totally into them. You know, uh, good thing we don't have I mean, a Brit here. They would be very. I think they, they would, would debate that you. point. I think you don't think so? No. Okay. They would be like. I look forward to our special Anglophilia episode of we should have yeah. Yeah. Okay. British television and British oh movies. Oh my god! Yeah, let's yeah. schedule it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was Nobody watching, will listen to it, but that's okay. <laughs> I was watching. We'll have so uh, much fun. I was watching we'll Pims. I was watching Broadchurch on the way. On the I way was back. watching Broadchurch last I got week. The first it was on the first two episodes were on the the Virgin America thing. So, but I've only gotten through the first two episodes. So, it gets dark. It gets it, real dark. It gets darker. It gets darker. Oh wow! Okay. I, I, I was actually sick last Wednesday um, and watched all eight of them or nine of them in a row. So oh, okay. I don't recommend that. It leaves you kind of depressed and, right. and bleak yeah. feeling. Okay. The first two are pretty dark. So, so yeah, that's on my list now. Um, speaking okay. of darkness. Speaking of darkness. So <laughs> what was it, two years ago? President Obama went Buffalo. Was it two years ago? How long was this waiting? Uh, it was two years on? ago in August. Two years ago in so August. So almost closing. two years ago in Buffalo, New York, the president of the United States gave a speech and said that we are going to, his administration was going to create a college ratings plan. And he was going to do this in order to make college more affordable and hold colleges accountable. Shake up higher education. Shake up higher education. And last week they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to take the data that could have been used for a college ratings plan and release it because then... Uh, consumers around the country will log on to the, I'm sure, highly user-friendly U.S. Department of Education website, download it into Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> come up with their own ratings, and that will hold colleges accountable. So um, I don't know. You know, I mean, the thing is, I feel like this sort of thought process, which is, hey, maybe college ratings would be a good idea. Okay, well, um, maybe. Uh, what, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, we should try to figure that out. Why would it be a good idea? How much? Well, you know, what? How much data is there? Well, let's look at the data we have. Okay, so if we could sort of take that data and make a ratings out of it, could we release something that would, in any way, not get us denounced and ridiculed? Ultimately, no. I feel like that thought process could have been taken from start to finish in like a long weekend. <laughs> Before two years the ago, before the speech, and it, as opposed to what actually happened, which is it took them two years to get from here to there. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm totally unsurprised by this. But there's, I mean, this is really a huge abdication of what was a pretty landmark speech that he made. This was really talked up. I mean, it was, I was a Politico at the time. I can, this was the thing that we were most interested in that was done on higher ed. I think the entire time I was there, it was a big deal. Um, I'm the opposite of surprised that it didn't happen. But... It's really, I mean, especially they had been to the higher ed rodeo before, you know, is was there, I, I don't understand how they didn't foresee this. Um, and I don't understand how they didn't, I mean, by dragging it out, they sort of made this inevitable. Either you release something and say it's quick and dirty and we know it's not good, but you start from somewhere and we work up to it, or you walk it back you know, a year and a half ago when it became very clear that colleges were not going to go along with this, the data was probably not as good as they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. 
I think we've known since the default rate uh, brush up in whenever that was September uh, when they declined to actually sanction colleges that were were due for sanctions. Since then, I've had no faith that this education department would say that any college is bad. Except, except for for-profits. College. Yeah, except and for ITT. for-profit colleges. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I have assumed since then Which that we would end sha- up. They're shady. <laughs> but they're not. They're shady and bad. Right? But, but the bad, shadiness, bad but the colleges, the if, you're, if you're honestly bad, we, we can tolerate that. Right? right? But we're not putting up a shadiness, which is a step, I guess. Yeah. And, and as we were, uh, today is the first, uh, we were saying, today is actually the first day that the gainful employment regulations of shady for profit colleges are a real thing that exists after years of uh, litigation and rulemaking and re rulemaking. Though not that I not that I'm certain will ever really be enforced, um, given that it's the next administration by the time anybody's getting sanctioned, and at this rate, all of the, you know, publicly traded ones are going to be out of business by then. That will, ah. that will probably <laughs> depend quite a bit on who Phoenix has had a the bad week too. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my reading on the ratings is um, um, similar to 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 your guys. I think one of the things that was interesting to think about was why. Why is the political cost of abdicating here not particularly high? And there's a few things. Number one, I think I think it's a misconception to suggest that it was only unpopular among trade associations and advocate and and higher ed advocates. I think there were a bunch of there were a bunch of smart people whose writing I read who were like, this is a bad idea, not just for measurement issues, but also just like the notion of it was always weird to rate colleges, let's say on the percentage of students who receive a Pell Grant, right? Like, I can see why the federal government would want to be interested in that, but, like, setting a threshold for that is sort of a weird idea. If you're in, like, in a Connecticut suburb, right, there's just not going to be that many Pell-eligible kids there, right? So so that's one That's one thing. The other thing that that is just sort of, like, uh, this in relation to free college, right? So the rating, the ratings was, like, the ratings, you know, however misguided it was, was an attempt... Uh, you know, in my opinion, a wrongheaded attempt to manage the fact that the market doesn't work as efficiently as we'd like, right? Maybe, yeah. With people's choices. So, so another, so we have to be the third party that helps guide our dollars to where they should go, right? But what's interesting is like now related to the free college, like if everything's free on the public, in the public sector and people are just supposed to go there, then like, why do you need all that? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the Obama administration is, yeah, it's kind of an outlier in the Democratic Party on this. I mean, there is not, and I sort of, I had that sense from what's happened in the Senate, but like, the most striking thing was there was zero appetite for this plan from the beginning with anybody who isn't part of the Obama administration. I mean, Republicans didn't like it, Senate Democrats, we would ask them about it, and it would just be this sort of like, eh, that seems like a fine idea, let's talk about these 12 other parts of the agenda that have nothing to do with college ratings. I mean— Was there a bill even introduced? No, there there has been no—I don't yeah, think so. I There's been no so. legislative support for this in any way from the beginning. So I was always kind of enthusiastic. I mean, I, uh, I mean, if it, <laughs> you and Jordan Weissman, right. all Jordan in. Weissman, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only because I think it 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 uh, sprang from an admirable instinct, which is the federal government should have an opinion about what quality of higher education is, and that opinion should matter in some way, and it should matter more broadly than just the narrow issue of consumer protection from shady colleges. Um, so I, th- you know, I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm glad gainful employment is going to effect. I think it's a good idea. I think the administration has largely been vindicated on the measures that it <clears throat> it chose to define it because they seem to match up pretty well with colleges that are ostensibly terrible and going out of business sort of semi of their own accord. Um, and I think, but I think that the you know the uh, 
far and away the most persuasive critique of Gainful has been, why just for-profit colleges? Why is tax status going to be so determinative? And are, do you seriously think there aren't lots of nonprofit colleges that are also ill-serving students? I don't think anyone who looks at the data can honestly say that the answer to that question is not yes, depending on how I phrased it. There are b bad nonprofit colleges. Um, and so... The thing, you know, the, the ratings plan was, I think, fatally hamstrung by an incoherence of purpose and theory from the beginning. It was never exactly sure how they thought that the ratings would work or why they were making them. But if you asked them, they had at least two or three answers. And what I what I said to them, and I did have a few chances to give them direct advice on this, none of which were taken, was you cannot actually have one ratings scheme that will do two or three things at the same time. If what you really want to do is set a floor for nonprofit colleges, below which you're say, you're saying this is a problem, you you have one set of data and one set of measures and one way to combine them for that. If on the other hand you're trying to provide consumer information and identify schools that are, you know, maybe not the ones that everyone thinks are good but are actually good and doing a good job with a diverse group of students to helping them graduate, you can do that too. That that's a whole different system. It's different data. You're not going to have one scale where the top is the one thing you want and the bottom is the other thing that you want. So what's disappointing is I think I think they basically should have given up on the second thing, the aspirational thing, because one, you have to get into all kinds of almost unsolvable issue involving regression analysis that one makes them impossible to understand to quote, give people credit for having lots of low income students on the outcome side. You end up with a huge fight, you know, with the low income college, you know, High poverty colleges, historically black colleges, to how you define them and how you rate them, whatever you come up with. I mean, it's one thing if you're, say, Washington Monthly Magazine, wh whom I've worked for for a long time, that sort of does this as an interesting journalistic expertise, expertise or exercise. That was three words, the third of which was right. Um, but to, for the government to sort of make a definitive judgment, I think you just it almost kind of can't be done. On the other hand, I really do think that they could have set a floor that would have been defensible. And they kind of just chose not to. And I think that's disappointing. Yeah, I kind of agree. I've actually begun to think I've become to be become I've become very skeptical of the consumer facing side of a lot of this because I just don't see that there's a lot of evidence, unfortunately, I think, for the sort of consumer information mm -hmm. that this White House has really wanted to provide. Um there's just not a lot of evidence that people are picking colleges this way. And I don't think, you know, and and that for the people who really have a lot of choices, um, they're often choosing among ones that are going to look fine pretty much in any rating, regardless. You know, no, nobody's going to flunk the public IVs, the selective nonprofits, the ones that are drawing from a real national pool where national level data is important. Then you have the 50% or so of students who are going to totally non-selective institutions and have a totally different set of needs, and possibly there's something there that will help them. But if you know you're going to get in, I don't know how much information you're seeking out at the front end. You know, I, I just have, they've never really clarified if this is a consumer tool, which is the direction they've gone in, where they think the appetite is for that information that isn't already being provided. So I think part of the problem, I don't, I don't disagree with you, though I would, I would push back a little bit and say that we're, that we have built more evidence that, mm -hmm. that people do respond to stimuli. Right, there was just this study out of Chile by some economists that showed that when you, when you provide when you provided information about likely wage outcomes, mm -hmm. that people adjusted their choices in res in response. And I, I don't quote me on this, but I believe it was particularly large effect among lower income, middle and lower income students. Well, in, in your research, says graduation rates, right? Yeah, graduation rates. I ha did. A, I have a recent st study that's that I'm analyzing now about. Adults with no post-secondary credential. Just what what happens when I tell you about the labor market outcomes in 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 states that collect them for associate's degrees in nursing versus medical assisting versus other things. So Although presumably all these studies um, 
have to assume a sort of structured choice process that may not actually exist absent the study. Yeah, but that doesn't. But 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 the but that but that's where you have to start, right? So so in other words, so in other words, one way to think about this is if we don't see an effect in the study, then Libby's point is absolutely correct, right? If you see an effect in the study, then you have to start asking, well, how do you start to do? How do you start to structure the choice environment so that it better reflects what we what we what we did here? And sometimes that's not possible. Um, the other thing I would say, um, um, just quickly, is I think I think the problem with the discussion about whether people are choosing colleges or not is that that implicit in that is that somebody should always choose to go, right? People always have the choice not to go, not to invest in the place that's right in front of them that might hurt them in the end. And this is something that like the Axis advocates like they start gnashing their teeth when I start talking this way, right? But but in my opinion. If your choice is between something that's going to put you in debt and not give you a, size, a sizable return that's big enough to get to, to pay your debt off, you shouldn't go to that place and study that thing, right? And so, so choosing, you always have a choice. Um, and this is what we sort of we sort of just we have this people in, we have these people in mind who are single-minded about enrolling in college, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's and I think that's wrong. The, the point that I think is more important on the choosing side is that a lot of people are non-consumers who are recruited to become consumers. Um, and that's, that's where there's real grounds for abuse um, uh, on the part of different kinds of colleges, frankly. I mean, that really, um, it does cut against the like psychology and narrative and maybe mythology of the connection between, some mythology, between college going and sort of opportunity and societal expectations. Sort of the oh you just don't go to college I, I just don't think a lot you don't of, go I don't then think you don't go then right. you don't go to the place that's like I'm not saying why, you're wrong I'm just saying why would we but yeah. why would we ever advocate for somebody to say take out a mortgage for a house mm. that's going to be underwater No, I, right? I agree like, but people don't think of it in the same way they but just they don't. have to they ought to <laughs> they uh, should right and we should talk about right. markets that way right like if you're going to buy a product that hurts you then you shouldn't buy it I mean I'm, I. I this is just my intuition. I feel like I'm totally persuaded by the put data, more data out there changes nothing critique of the consumer, the kind of consumer information light theory of accountability. That said, it's it, I do think people are very aware that they are making a high stakes choice. My assumption, again, this is just my assumption, is that it is highly social and reputational, that it's just in the air or among, you know, social networks and people like what the good colleges are. It's very anecdotal. Um, it's and that there needs so so the mechanism needs to be some way not for data to influence consumers it's for data to influence reputations in a way that consumers yeah. will respond to i think that's yeah i think that's i mean the issue with this and we at vox occasionally some people not me have brought up the idea of doing some kind of college ranking or college rating and i've always sort of pushed back a because it seems like it would be tremendously time consuming and b because i know what that can bring down on your head and i it don't is. feel like it at the moment um but the, I mean, the question I always sort of say is, this isn't something you do objectively. This is something you start with a value judgment and you decide what your values are and you build a system that yeah. reflects those values. And the there department's no, value no appears truth. to be that there is no bad college. You know, right. there is no college we're truly willing to label as bad that is not a for-profit. And when you're working from that, obviously you can't construct a I said this system. to them also. I said you, there is no such thing as a, an empirical ranking. There is only a ranking that uh, expresses accurately whatever your values are. Like, understand that, live with it, tell people what your values are, tell them why they are, and just go from there. But by that, me but, and by that logic, right, part of what was always super confusing to me was why, you know, this whole, like, scolding colleges to take on more low-income students, right? 
like the whole like the whole like the upshot writes about how Vassar's made this new commitment to whatever, right? To take on like fifteen additional low income students, right? It's like great, terrific. No offense to the upshot, but um, it's probably no, more, no, it's no, probably no. more than fifteen, right? <laughs> so, but it's not much more, right? So that that but like the notion that like the notion that a consumer would want a college that's rated on the pro- on the proportion of low income students that enrolls i can guarantee you that middle class parents in particular but also i would imagine a, lo- a few lower class parents would be like i don't want my kid to go to a college that has tons of poor kids but i think the scolding th- but this scolding thinks an alternative to that right i mean it's it's elite social pressure so so for example i know for a fact that if you if you look at major like elite research universities, the one that's always the worst on the percent pal is Washington University in St. Louis. They're, they've gotten tired of it, and they're actually trying to improve their numbers. And maybe it's just they're tired of kind of getting yelled at. But what, if it works, then isn't that a good thing? No, because this is this is this is the paper that that Awolda Rodriguez and I did last year, which is like when your student body is small, and and the percent pal is the measure, right? Then it's really easy to improve that in a, in a year by taking on ten or fifteen more. Okay. You can literally jump like two deciles, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, deciles, everyone said. But you can do that in in a, in a year by enrolling right. marginally more. Meanwhile, the places that you're trying to convince to get better, right, to actually change the way they offer education to improve their outcomes, they have to do like, you know, an inordinate amount of hard work to actually do that. So it's a that's why it's a silly thing to. But measure. I, I mean, it, it, I think it it brings this idea of. Uh, a social obligation into the value system of w- how we think about w- what co- like eliteness is in higher education. Why don't and I we think measure how thing. many low-income students you graduate? Because we don't know. But like that would be that would be a great thing to put in a rating, uh, in my opinion. Well, I agree with that. Right? But we, I mean, the yeah. department has that information, right? Um, They're required to collect Pell Grant graduation rates and have been for several years. Yeah, it's we haven't unclear. seen them. Yet. We haven't seen them, but unclear. like they have, <laughs> right. they, you know, yeah. like that would have been a great, yeah, it's that would have been a great thing it's to, a no, to see. It's an right. unknown known. <laughs> All right, last thing, and then we'll move on to our next topic. Uh, it'll be, so they did say they'll put, they t- they're going to put data out at the end of the summer. They did say the data will include data that hasn't been released before. So, you know, promises, promises, we'll see. To me, the big question is, will the earnings data be in there? Because we know they exist. Uh, they're out there. And uh, there are some people that think it would be irres- – n- there are some people in the department that think it would be irresponsible to release average earnings by institution and don't want to. And but the data are there. They, the the runs have been made. Um, so we'll see if that information ever sees the light of day. Yeah, I mean, I, two years ago, two and a half, no, maybe three years ago, is pre the ratings plan being a thing. James Qual told me that uh, the scorecard two months from whenever then was uh, would have earnings data on it. So you know, I um, <laughs> they've had it for a while. See, I think I I think um, that that they ended up where they should have ended up. And which is a core competency of the federal government, which is to collect data and make it available to people who can sure. use it um, and not apply your own weights to those different dimensions that consumers might weight differently, um, but but make sure that people go into it with with eyes wide open. And, and so I'm eager to see what they come up with. Um, any, any additional um, information should be helpful. And I think you're right. I think part of what they should aim to do here is – how do you create? How do you release data that then somebody like U.S. News or some or Barons or whoever feels obligated to use because it's there, right? And then suddenly, so then suddenly you have to people start take notice, right? 
Washington Monthly will use the earnings data. Yeah. We've been asking for it since forever. And, yeah, and, and to think that like U.S. News yeah. wouldn't use it oh, in they any won't, capacity. They won't, they won't use, it. use it. You don't think so? Oh, no, no. U.S. News has perfectly optimized a rating system to replicate the existing status hierarchy in American higher education. Anything that takes Their earnings data will do that the too. Top, they won't use it. Their earnings data will do that too, though. They could have, I mean, they could well, have bought it from Payscale if they though. really wanted it. it. No, the, the earnings data will differentiate in the middle. The earnings data will not differentiate. It'll knock the MIT up a little bit. and if, if, it'll, put like, it'll put like Harvey Mudd and Caltech. If they run the numbers, the top, Harvard and Princeton are one, two, the they will though. not change it because if they just can't blow people's minds like that. They're not in that business. They're in the non-blowing of people's minds business. So then somebody else will, and, sure, sure, yeah. and say, yeah. and say, and say, Forbes your rankings are your or, rankings yeah. are BS. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Forbes already is. I mean, right. we should do a separate earnings data podcast because right. I think there's enough to talk about there. But yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't find earnings data by institution particularly helpful at all. Since mostly what it tells you is the major gender racial composition of a university. So my whole my next column for the upshot, which hopefully will be out in a few days, um, the whole point of it is just that all institution-level information is nonsense, and we should stop talking about institutions as coherent organizations because they aren't really, and... Anyway, so I think it depends. I mean, I think it really depends. I think, I think, like, I think within, I think within the top echelon of schools, I think institution level data do tell you a lot because the idea that people are going there having chosen it because there's a major that they want to do is not is not actually correct in my in my opinion. I think what you're capturing there is like you're capturing largely their admissions process. Sure, right? sure. So, so. Well, Educationally, it doesn't. They don't make any difference. You can say they matter in terms of That's like fair. what what it, the experience yeah. and the, your peers. But anyway, um, moving on to uh, Sweetbriar College, which has become uh, far far more famous than it ever was before by virtue of its unexpected um, plans to uh, shut down in an orderly fashion, and those plans have now been changed due to alumni pressure and a lawsuit, and essentially they are now going to. Turnover management of the college to uh, new management subject to raising money that doesn't exist yet, and they're not going to close. Is it twelve million dollars? What do we? So what do we think I about don't that? Don't actually know. Yeah. Well, I think that it's good evidence of um, how why it's so rare for colleges to actually go out of business. Um, um, unless they're literally broke. Unless they're well, yeah, but even then, right? I mean, so yeah, unless they're literally broke, because they cannot make payroll, right? Um, um, so I think that the response from some critics of kind of the reform, the reformist folks in the, in the policy community was, see, colleges don't go, this isn't, this isn't disruption and the market drying up for private liberal arts colleges, right? They'll always exist and there's a market for them. I think that's the absolute wrong conclusion to come to. I think, I think that they are. It's proof that they're that they're actually more like museums, right? Or things that we have sentimental attachment to, that and that politicians and judges and alumni have sentimental attachment to, and that that's why they're so hard to put out of business. Um, and I don't, you know, Sweetbriar, I I applaud. I think I think here when we talked about it or talking with the reporters, I applauded them for sort of saying, "Look, we're going to try and take the responsible route of sort of we we're looking ahead. We see that the market is down for us and." So we're going to try and be responsible. Um, and I applauded them for that. And now instead, it's like they're going to go on for a few years trying to raise a bunch of extra money, which, I mean, who knows whether that'll work out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that this happened roughly the same week as the ratings uh, conversation. Unfortunately, happened a week I was writing about other things and so haven't written about either of them yet. But um, I think together they really do show why higher education is a weird and difficult market. Um, 
I don't know if it's a barrier to exit necessarily, but just the idea that there are a lot of people who are really invested in no college ever closing down for any reason ever, um, combined with kind of a large-scale unwillingness to talk about and define quality, which is not to say that Sweetbriar is a bad college or that it was going out of business because it's a bad college. There was really no indication of that at all. Um, But it's taken together, it really shows why the force of the status quo is so powerful, um, both politically and just in terms of, you know, alumni. I mean, I, I describe them as military bases with alumni, and I'm I'm basically standing by that. Yeah, I think that's right. That's it's ba- you know, it's I mean, this is this is problem. like a broader set of dynamics that's not unique to colleges. Although it's probably all the stuff that you said about museums and social pressure and alumni probably makes it worse. But I mean, in general, the observation is that organizations always wait too long to die, right? Like they don't want to die. It would be in everyone's best interest. I mean, this is kind of a, a derivation of the principal agent problem. You know, businesses do this, right? The, the board, the people who are running it. Like at some point, like probably Radio Shack should have shut, stopped five years ago, right? But they didn't, oh, we're going to sell some more we of this do and it. some more of that. And yeah. We have a new strategy and we brought on a new person and everyone gets paid and the shareholders end up getting screwed. Um, <clears throat> and so Sweetbriar kind of, you know, and usually with like $900,000 in the bank or some, I mean, they, they weren't down to their last dollar, said, we can see the future and let's let's make this an orderly process as opposed to a disorderly process. I guess we'll never really know the counterfactual now. And I don't, it's not clear to me whether this was a net plus or a net minus, but on some level we'll find out who, I mean, in a way, whatever happens, it will be seen as proof about who was right and who was wrong. The interesting thing too, I was talking to a friend, this is a story that interestingly, among people who'd never heard of Sweetbriar, as you said, I've had a lot of conversations with this, about this with friends who don't know much about or have a particular interest in higher education. Um, And a friend of mine was saying her mother went to a Sweetbriar-like college in D.C. in the 60s. And a lot of those, and it's shut down, a lot of those have shut down. And it does make me wonder, you know, what is, is it actually harder now for a college to go out of business than it was 50 years ago? And if so, what's changed in the interim? Um, Because as I recall, there was kind of a private college die-off. They're bigger and they have more employees. And so... A college going out of business is a big loss of jobs for your congressional district or your state legislative district, right? Or, or if you're, you know, who, you know, whoever, whoever sort of has has something to lose from from that that loss of, you know, small business owners in the neighborhood might be upset, right? I mean, there's a whole constellation of things. There's a whole small economy that that you that you generate when you bring more than like 250 people together in one place sure. right you, they need to buy things because sweetbriar is a women's college it was both more vulnerable but also but more more vulnerable to shutting down but also more likely to engender this kind of response because alumni feel uh, alumni feel a stronger connection to it than they would have if it was just a random coeducational uh, uh, you know liberal arts college yeah and look carolyn hoxby you know will say that that you know, mostly elite colleges, but but all colleges you could apply this to, that they're sort of like venture capital models and the admissions process acts as the investment, right? So where you're trying to find the best the right. best future alumni to donate to your college to support it in the future. So one way to think about one, one way to think about this the, the the alumni piece is that that as that is actually part of the market, right? That like right. they've responded because they still have some some they still see some value in the experiential good that they got however many years ago right so you know I, that's the thing like it doesn't um, being bad doesn't put you out of business in a market 
you can be really good and still go out of business because somebody's better than you, right? right. That's just that's like, or you just you're really good in a way that is not supportable by the market, right? Like, right, there's just not right. people to pay you for your good thing, right? Radio Which Shack, I think Radio Shack. I can walk into Radio Shack and, and buy something <coughs> I need at Radio Shack, and it's convenient if it's mm-hmm. there's one nearby. I don't know if you need some random little electric, you know, cables. In the future, what are you, where are you going to go? <laughs> there Amazon. were people in my elevator very very disappointed yesterday that the radio across the I street to, shut down. I went yeah. to Best Buy to try to buy a, like literally like a little thing for a speaker cable, and they're like, "Well, no, we don't have what." Are talking about it's all wireless now man go away yeah go away we don't have any of that and this was up in columbia heights and electric it was in the you know the radio shack is empty in front of it so they're like well radio shack is empty so yeah amazon prime i guess Um, we have to go right so and it's i mean it has also kind of it is this somewhat perpetual conversation about are private liberal arts colleges doomed and and I th- and I think there's there's sort of a an, a broad way of thinking about the future of higher education in which they'll be the first ones to go because they're small and inflexible and they don't have any money and they're kind of as close to sort of the bleeding edge of the actual free market for charging tuition for services as you can get in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't have unlike the for profit sector they don't have any access to capital and they don't they're, they're not sort of built around like well some of them are you know I mean I mean as some people noted when it first happened Sweetbriar's not that far from. Liberty University, which is also a private nonprofit college, which is thriving because it has a huge online presence and is making, pulling in massive amounts of federal resources to to do that. But they never kind of got into that business. So no, and they have diversified. Interesting. The reason yeah. I'd heard of them is their study abroad program. I mean, they they had mm-hmm. sort of diversified right. from just educating the two thousand whatever students that they have. Yeah. But I personally am thrilled because I've been going to go down to the Sweetbriar and write a story, and I didn't get around to it, and right. now it's reopened, and I've gotten a second chance. There's so. a, a Save Sweetbriar uh, sign in my neighborhood, just right near where I saw. I saw yeah. a car actually yeah. with Save Sweetbriar, um, yeah. and I do think that I mean it's not just Sweetbriar alumni who were interested in and involved in the story, and I think that sort of gets to something we talk a lot too about social media and how things go national in a way sure. that they didn't five it's or kinda, ten it's years a good ago. Name yeah, it's story, you know, it's better right? than like a fraternity People outrage. Like, they but like, read the name and then made yeah. made a bunch of actually very correct assumptions about what yeah. it was like. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, I bet yeah. It's kind of, yeah, actually, it it's sounds just like, like a that. place that like Disney characters, right? With like horses, and, right. and it's actually right. that place. Turns yeah. out, interestingly enough. I mean, I think so. Just on the liberal arts point, one of the things I, you know, because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of like conservatives who are like who who are who feel like the the sort of you know, agenda around earnings data and innovation is going to do away with liberal arts. And they see that as like a huge um, casualty, right? And my response to that often is um, part of the problem is that um, as college has gotten more expensive, people are people students are under pressure from their parents and from themselves to study things that they think will get them a job. And I think they're wrong about what they think will actually get them a job. So don't get me wrong, but that's a behavioral problem, right? So that results in people saying, "Oh, liberal arts, ah, I can't do that because that's not readily applicable." And so I, what my my message to people is always. Innovation that that lowers the cost of delivery and lowers tuition prices is actually the salvation for the liberal arts, right? Like it cannot, you, it cannot continue to go this way, right? Um, and nobody listens, but that's okay. That's okay. You'll, you'll be <laughs> you'll be proved right. Um, thirdly, uh, the Supreme Court announced this week that it was going to take up another iteration of the now long running Fisher v. Texas affirmative action case. Um, so last time, I guess 2013, this is when it was, they, or was it been longer than that? 12, 2012. 2012. Um, no, no, you're right. You're right. Okay. Case was heard in 2012. Uh, decision came down in 2013. So they sent it back to the lower court, basically <laughs> saying um, they chose not to declare affirmative action unconstitutional. They sent it back to the lower court with essentially a stricter set of standards to apply, um, basically saying that the University of Texas, it was permissible to have 
um, race-oriented objectives, but it had to exhaust all means of adopting race-neutral means to achieve those objectives, and that was the standard that the court should use. Uh, the court heard it again, voted two to one in favor of the University of Texas, um, saying, yep, they're, they're in compliance with this new standard. That was appealed back to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court granted cert and agreed to hear that. Um, the last case was seven to one, um, with Elena Kagan abstaining because she was in the Office of Solicitor General, I guess, when she was the Solicitor General when this was heard. But it was pretty well understood that it was a compromise seven to one, that the, that the, that the people who, and I think there are, I'm not crazy in saying there are some on the court who would like to just end this whole thing, didn't either didn't have the votes or didn't want to sort of have a five to three decision or a four to three decision then. So uh, I assume this is bad for affirmative action. Libby, you follow this case. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Clearly, the fact that they took it again is is an indicator that there are probably four votes on the court that would like to throw out affirmative action. Um, the the pro affirmative action faction, um, which Anthony Kennedy is generally thought not to be a part of, which is another sign that it, this is this is going to go badly. Probably um, has no reason to to deviate from O'Connell saying and O'Connell saying in two thousand five uh, or two thousand six or whenever that was right. that it could stand for for twenty five years. Um, this is the so Michigan case. This is the Michigan it. case, yeah. Um, and it was, Better I think it was 2003, Bollinger. and so that yeah. would put us at 2028. So we're uh, mini 13 years early right. on a reconsideration of this. The two things, the two things I think Which are is interesting. crazy, by the way. And I'm gonna, I yeah. just want to bring that up, why that's crazy. But anyway. No, why, why is it crazy? Go ahead. Well, because, because like a long time ago, we decided, legal, I mean, going all the way back to Bakke in like 1978, we, the Supreme Court said, you can't just do this in order to right historical wrongs. Like right. you can do, I mean, there has to be an educational purpose. So if there's an educational purpose now, there'll be one in 25 years and there'll be one in 125 years. So why would, so it's, she was like assuming a underlying rationale, which I believe actually is the underlying rationale often, but not the one that everyone was pretending wasn't the underlying rationale, wouldn't be needed even though that wasn't legal in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting to me also about this moment in time about this case coming back is it doesn't really have anything to do with the legal case because, as you said, writing historical wrongs is no longer the, the stated purpose of affirmative action. It's having a critical mass of students. It's having educational benefits that extend to everybody. At the same time, this case is coming back up at a time when there's more attention to historical wrongs and their lingering consequences than I think there has been uh, in any time yeah, that, that these cases have been heard. And I don't think that will affect what happens in the courtroom. I don't think we're going to see like a giant shift in the justification for affirmative action. But I'm very interested to see how sort of the conversation and the policy thinking around that unfolds. And if we're going to get, you know, an acknowledgement or a return to the idea that like, yeah, maybe there is something to this writing historical wrongs business. Um, and if it's not affirmative action, what is it? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's that is interesting because we are we are. I feel like the uh, you know the national mood, the national conversation, the sort of the conventional wisdom around sort of race and history and obligation and what what remains to be done is different in a number of ways. And and so even though like more time has gone by, like a lot of those issues seem more present in the way we're talking about them now than before. Um, I think the thing that pushes some somewhat back against that, however, is the dialogue around um, higher ed uh, reform and the completion agenda has actually been mainly focused on socioeconomic status and income, um, and particularly income inequality on the part of the left. So, you know, as, as we know, I mean, we've, there's, you know, colleges have been practicing some form of affirmative action for a long time. Right. 
has not narrowed gaps between low-income students and high-income students. They've gotten bigger because oftentimes affirmative action, you know, is 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 not uh, correlation of race and income is not as high as uh, as you know as you might expect in Particularly when a university institution, right? When a university is picking, the right, matters. right? When a university is picking and choosing the students that they're choosing to to use affirmative action to help in. So, so I just think, I mean, that's one thing that'll be interesting is to, to see like the advocates. How the advocates respond, right? Because like Rick Kallenberg, right? Who who you guys right. know, right? Has yeah. has always been sort of more on the socioeconomic. He's very happy about the appeal yeah. because he. I mean, yeah. I was reading some. I was on an email discussion with Rich uh, last week, and he's like, "This is good for progressives because we're gonna because this is gonna force colleges into class based affirmative action, which is permissible because class is not a uh, strict scrutiny, and they'll standard. never do it." So well, I I mean, I, I don't agree with Rick, and I think I mean I, I and I don't actually I mean this is interesting. It's interesting for me to think about, well, okay, like let's say they just say, the four justices say, you know what, we're done. We're just going to draw the line here. And that wouldn't be the most radical thing that's been done, you know, by this court in terms of changing this and that. Um, how do you enforce it, actually? Because, you because Massive moral hazard problem, right? You don't, just, you don't know just, what people are You're going to take something. So I think that I, – I, I think colleges, particularly elite colleges, are very, very invested in this idea that they have an obligation to have a diverse student body. I think for both uh, – Good reasons and sort of selfish reasons, but I mean, you can argue about why. But I to a point, they think they need a diverse student body. But to a point, right? I mean, they they. I mean, you can we can have a whole conversation about the levels of hypocrisy and and in that and many other things in higher education. But I don't think that they want to walk away from it. I think that they have a strong sense of what they want to look at when they see their students, and they want to be able to say about their commitment to diversity and all the rest of it. I mean, admissions is inherently non-formulaic when it comes down to it. Um, so I think that, like, I think they've had a race as a factor because that's the easiest way to do it. But to the extent gonna... that, like, Bob Putnam's right, right, in his in his latest book, which is which suggests that like differences within differences across races are not as stark as differences across socioeconomic status within races, right? Then you're actually then then this whole notion of diversity becomes like really interesting. Right to think about like if 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 middle and high income people all live together, right in the same types of neighborhoods and they go to the same types of schools, then then racial diversity right doesn't actually equal necessarily diversity of life experience, which is sort of what I think colleges are trying to go for. I think it does. I mean, I actually think if if we're going to have the educational benefit conversation rather than the the historical mm-hmm. wrong conversation, I think there also isn't more of acknowledgement now than there was. The last time this case came up, that class distinctions matter and class experiences matter and class experiences are different, but racial experiences are also distinct and different in a way that class-based experiences are not. Um, I've been eavesdropping because I obviously have nothing to contribute to this conversation, but sort of on discussions about is there a black middle class in any same and functional way as there is a white middle class, not speaking about income, but speaking about whether it's wealth or whether it's sort of lived experience, Mm -hmm. if this is even like a, a... distinction that can be drawn. Um, and how much is this discussion relying on any kind of empirical data or research? Is it mostly just sort of impressionistic? I mean, I, I in terms I mean, there's a lot of data in terms of what in terms of wealth and housing and that. I think some of it though is is not things that can be measured empirically. Understood. Yeah. Um and so I think that, you know, maybe that does come around to bolster the either you need both or that at least that they can't be sub. You can't easily sub one for the other. I th- yeah, I, mean, not I think the same if you <clears throat> people say, "Look, you cannot you cannot look at a two quote middle class uh, 
college students, one black, one white, and assume that they both come to college with the same level of support and experience and all the rest of it. In fact, the black student is far more disadvantaged, even if the income is the same. I think that that is, I find that to be a very persuasive argument. And, um, and I've read some of the people kind of explaining, you know, at some length, like why that's true. So, uh, and I think, I mean, and the other part of it too, is just, you know, I'll kind of get on my soapbox a little bit here, but but the idea that where we're going to be a year from now is a higher education system where every other kind of affirmative action is legal, right? So we can have legacy admissions, we can have an, a system of like essentially open bribery into elite institutions. Um, you know, University of Texas had a program of if you're a politician's kid, you get in. I mean, they, they, no one argues whether this was true or not true. Basically, the president said, yeah, we were doing that, but everyone does that. So why are you yelling at me? Um, it's, I mean, I think it's there is some amount of money you can donate to even the best universities in America that will get your kid a leg up. So all of that is fine. And they get to continue to do that. The one thing they can't do is uh, provide preferences to less privileged uh, students because of their race, because of a legal standard of strict scrutiny, which is is itself a function of this nation's shameful history of racial discrimination, that's yeah, but, what we're going to be. But that's but you just but you but you just leveraged shameful history when five seconds ago, five minutes ago, you told me that that's not that's not the compelling explanation for why they should do this in the first. Place. No, I think that's not the legal explanation. So I think I personally think it is. I think that they are both compelling. I just yeah I mean I, I, it'll be interesting to watch what happens this is not this is not my area of expertise but but I do know that that there's you know there's a lot of uh it's still a very fresh debate for a lot of people right um well one thing I'm sure of is that when the case happens uh all of a sudden uh people who normally don't care what I do or what I think about anything will suddenly want my hot take on affirmative action um, and the same will be true for both of you. So we can all look forward to having to stop our work and, and talk about why this is the single most important thing. I'm going to have a big Supreme Court term because um, there's the union case as well. The, uh, which case? The union dues case, oh, uh, right. which is yeah, super, yeah, yeah. super, super important for K-12 politics. Argu um, arguably much more important for the entire education system. Yeah. I, I mean, not arguably, much more important. Mm -hmm. Right. Union dues, faculty, unions, yeah. K-12 unions, um, massively important. Right. And it's, it's again, it's hard to, with this court. It's hard to feel like see why you take that case if you don't want to change things. So yeah, there's 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 a lot bound up in that right? yeah. case. Yeah, would be interesting. All right, thanks to everyone for listening, and as always, thanks to John Williams and Amanda Gaines here from New America who do a fantastic job of producing this podcast. Until next time, we'll see. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike, 4.0 International License. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.